Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. So now we've got this report, this 69-page report from the Centers for Disease Control from the CDC. 69-page packet that was labeled for internal use only. It has been leaked. And this report says, and I quote, the more a student or staff member interacts with and the longer that interaction, the higher the risk of COVID-19 spread. Randy Weingarten, who is the president of the American Federation of Teachers, said, and I quote, Trump suppressed a CDC report that concluded, quote, fully opening schools and universities remain the highest risk for the spread of coronavirus, end quote, Trump, Pence, DeVos, had this report, and they said the exact opposite. She's the president of a 1.7 million person alliance of teachers in the nation. She's right. Would you send your kid to school this fall? This is absolutely chilling. Neville Dog posting over at DU uh, an excerpt from a plan. This is in Utah. This is a school in Utah release their opening plan, right? And there's one, two, three, four, there's uh, 10 bullet points here. These are the things that you need if you're going to open your school, right? According to the school board or the somebody in the, you know, but this is what they, this is what the school got, right? Uh, You need to be ready for crisis communication. And then here's the bullet points, a closure letter for parents, closure information for employees, Skylert message for the closure of the school, exposure letter, process talking points, distance learning plan information, template for a web item, template for essential, that word is blocked out, uh, tasks, I believe it is. And then finally, template letter for the death of a student or teacher. If you're going to open your school, you have to write a form letter that you will be able to fill in the person, you'll be able to personalize it with the names to say, I'm very sorry to inform you, but little Johnny uh, in the class Uh, where your kid is going to school has died. Or I'm very sorry to inform you that your son, little Johnny, has died. Or your daughter, little Sally. Or your teacher, Ms. Brown, she has died. In Arizona, Kimberly Chavez Lopez Bird, 61, died a week or so ago. Fewer than two weeks after she was hospitalized. She and Jenna Martinez and Angela Skillings, three teachers in Arizona, decided that they would, they would teach summer classes. Sure, we'll do that. This was the Hayden Winkleman School District. She'd, she had taught there for 38 years, long enough that she was, starting, she was teaching the kids of people that, she's taught at, that she had taught as kids. She was admitted to the hospital and immediately put on oxygen, but her husband was not allowed to be with her. This uh, from CNN. The next morning, she called her husband, to say that the doctors were putting her on a ventilator. That was the last time they spoke. 
A few days after mom died, Jesse Bird, that's her husband, his daughter, his son, his daughter-in-law, their four-year-old granddaughter, and several other relatives all contracted COVID-19. Now, this was several days after mom died. Mom, the teacher, mom, the teacher who brought this home from school, his wife's brother also tested positive. He's been on a ventilator for 27 days now. She died just short of the 24th wedding anniversary. In Ohio, a 37-year-old man died from coronavirus after slamming the hype over the pandemic on Facebook. Richard Rick Rose, 37-year-old man from Port Clinton, Ohio, recently died at his home. He had posted just before he died on April 28th. He posted, let me make this, this is on Facebook, let me make this clear. I'm not buying an effing mask. He spelled out effing. I've made it this far by not buying into that damn hype. Today he's dead. He tested positive on July 1st. He died on July 3rd, 37 years old. Over on uh, the Twitter feed of Cleavon Gilman, MD, he's a physician. I just a few minutes ago retweeted his pinned thread where basically he has turned his Twitter feed into a continuous thread of people who have died from COVID. And I'm just going to read you a few of them. This is from six hours ago. Dead girl, a 13-year-old girl dependent of a service member stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, died from COVID at Comanche County Memorial Hospital. Nine hours ago, he posted... Uh, Yancey Alyssa from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 11 years old, died from COVID at Broward Health Medical Center. And he's like, yeah, let's look at these people who are dying. What they don't tell you about surviving COVID-19. This is a piece that was published uh, at the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle. SFGate is their uh, website. It's by Mike Moffat. The lucky ones, he's talking about people who have gotten COVID-19, the lucky ones, if you can call them that, recover, but not in the sense that their lives are back to normal. For some, the damage is permanent. Their organs will never fully heal. One of these nurses, Sherry Antoinette, she says, they may come back after discharge with a massive heart attack or stroke because COVID makes your blood thick as hell, or you may have to be on oxygen for the rest of your life. She says, COVID-19 is the worst disease process I've ever worked with in my eight years as an ICU nurse. When they say recovered, they don't tell you that means you may need a lung transplant. And her tweet then got this huge response from other people who had had COVID-19. Dan, I'm currently in the hospital after having a heart attack caused by clotting that resulted from COVID-19. I have a stent in my heart and need to wear a heart monitor vest at all times. Stephanie McCarroll, I went into acute kidney failure and needed dialysis. I now have asthma, chronic cough, and an irregular heartbeat. Conditions I've never had before. Plus, I'm wiped out all the time. This is from uh, Dr. D. Knight, a 20-year veteran nurse in New York City. These are my observations of hospitalized patients. One, everybody is so swollen, their skin has blisters and is so tight it looks like it's about to burst from head to heel. And skin is so dry and peeling and flaky that to slather Vaseline on every shift is almost necessary all over. Number two, everybody's skin is weeping clear fluid and has sores, and the skin just slides off with the slightest turn or rub all over the body. Number three, everybody's blood is thick as slush. Can't figure out what's making a clot like that, but it's dark and thick. Number four, everybody's kidneys are failing. Urine dark or red, which could contribute to the swelling. We don't know yet. Number five, everybody has an abnormal heart rhythm, not sure of the cause. Number six, at the slightest turn, for some, it leads to their almost immediate death. Bathing, cleaning, and turning to prevent skin breakdown causes most to code blue, so a decision has to be made on what's most important. Number seven, everyone has a Foley catheter. That's a catheter up your urethra. And a rectal tube, because they are incontinent of bowel and bladder. Number eight, everybody is on a feeding tube. Everybody. Nurse Vendetta, (laughs) V for Vendetta, tweets, I spent 10 days on a ventilator last night with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, and I'm still on oxygen. Going home is just the beginning of the next steps in recovery. Every aspect of my life has changed for the worse. Please wear a mask. 
Alicia, I'm a nurse on a COVID floor and I caught it. I'm a relatively healthy 24-year-old and I can barely walk up half a flight of stairs. My blood pressure skyrocketed. Chest pain was debilitating. I'm eight weeks out and still feeling the chest pain and shortness of breath. This is no joke. Another teacher, I had COVID for over 60 days. I'm 33 years old, was super healthy, pescatarian, 125 pounds, ran and did yoga every day. I couldn't walk for two weeks besides a couple steps. This is the worst illness of my life. Hollis Charles, I recovered March 29th. Now after COVID-19, I have acute bronchitis attacks three to four times a month and I get winded walking to my mailbox. Gene Fisher, on right lung of first world travel, oh, there's pictures of lungs. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. This people, this article in the San Francisco Chronicle, these people sharing their own experiences of COVID. You're it's mind-boggling. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with your calls and more of the news of the day in just a minute. So I have been tweeting about the things that we've been talking about here. And one of the people who follows my Twitter feed, and I'm sorry, I don't have that screen up in front of me right now, so I can't, can't tell you who it was, but thank you very much. Everybody can see your tweet. It says, I've got one for you. As I was reading some of these uh, tweets from the pinned tweet up at the top of Cleavon Gilman, his uh, Twitter handle is at Cleavon underscore MD, C-L-E-A-V-O-N underscore MD on Twitter and his pinned tweet up at the top and then just click, you know, read thread and you'll see I read like maybe 20% of it as we hit the break. And it's basically all young people dying from COVID, many of whom did not believe that there was anything to worry about. And this person says, well, I've got one for you. And and this is from the abcstlouis.com. This is from a St. Louis newspaper, but it's Dateline, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. A Tuscaloosa family is encouraging people to wear masks after their father died of COVID-19. Amy and Tyler Hinton say their father, Joe, thought COVID-19 was a hoax and didn't believe in wearing masks. Quote, he did not want to wear a mask. He did not think it was a very big deal. He thought, like a lot of people, that it was being blown out of proportion. He was not going to stop. He said, I'm not going to stop living my life no matter what we did or said or begged him. I told him, Dad, I know you're not going to wear a mask, but you should try and stay as far away from people as you can, and he wouldn't do that either. I told him, Dad, if you get this, you're probably going to die, and the hospital isn't going to let me see you. And he said, yeah, I know. His results came back positive June 18th. We actually made plans to see each other, and he said, well, you're going to have to actually put that on hold. I got COVID, and I kind of knew that was going to be it. He passed away on June 22nd, fewer than five days after testing positive. A friggin' amazing. June in uh, Knoxville, Iowa, is it? Yes, Knoxville, Iowa. Thank you so much for taking my call. There is so much disinformation going on out there, and it's not just coming from the White House. I was in Walmart yesterday morning, and the gal, the cashier behind the counter, told me, oh, this will all be over with when the, after the elections. And I said, do you really believe this is political? And she said, yes, yeah, 100%. I talked to my grandson, Sunday, who is 25 years old, and he said to me, well, I'm getting my information from the Internet, and they're telling me that a lot of these cases that they're calling COVID cases weren't even COVID. There are different right. diseases and injuries and, and things that happen to people, and they're writing it up as a COVID to blow it out of proportion. I'm not even talking to my grandson again until he comes to his senses. He's 25 years old. I think he would know better. There is a lot of yeah. disinformation. But, Tom, I have watched TV when, they're, when they have the attorneys for and against Trump talking to the Supreme Court and this kind of thing. We have some very intelligent people in the White House, in the Congress, in our government, people who know the Constitution. And, yes, a lot of it is up to inter- interpretation. But this is not anything to be interpreted. This is true. It's real. And people are dying. And nothing's being done about it because Donald Trump is a better actor than all the rest of them put together. And he's getting away with it. This disinformation. They're not just going after Dr. Fauci. What's his name? Yes. They're not just going after him. They're going after all the doctors, all these people that have put their lives on the line to take care of COVID patients. They're calling them frauds. They're saying this is phony. 
it's got the disinformation that's got. I know, you know, June, we were watching a couple of years ago when Ebola was erupting in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and DRC. We were watching healthcare workers being slaughtered, you know, being killed by local villagers when they were going in, you know, trying to help because they were being told that, that the Ebola was actually being brought to you by these people from outside. Um, I mean, you know, it's it, we and, and we looked at that and said, oh, those those silly people in that third world country, they just don't, you know, and their media is all kind of pathetic and they don't they're not all that smart. They didn't go to school. They're not well educated here. It's happening right now. It's it's your 25 year old grandson, June. I, you know, I get it. It's our president. He knows how to be a celebrity. He doesn't know anything else. Aaron in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Aaron, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, you know, this is a total mess. I mean, if you lost yeah. your job and, have, and then you had to pay the Cobra, do you know how much Cobra costs? It's really expensive. Yeah. It's really expensive. Yeah, and, you've, and by the way, we've got not just 135,000 dead people and 3 million people who have COVID, but probably a good chunk of those three million people are going to end up with hospital bills and doctor bills that are going to absolutely bankrupt them. Exactly. I mean, this, this thing is this exactly. is the biggest ad for Medicare for all that ever, ever was. Aaron, thank you. That was an excellent point. Richard in Marion, Illinois. Hey, Richard, what's up? Uh, just wanted to give you a, a couple of ideas. My mm-hmm. father was with Nuremberg back in the 1945 going into 46. And uh, I was in he Germany was part of the prosecutions uh, in war criminals, you mean? 1947. Two concepts that are German-based. My dad was later chief of prisons division for the, uh, for the American uh, sector or zone. And I asked my dad one time, I said, what would you say is the most dangerous type of criminal? And he said, well, son, he said, it's one who has got no foundation or flooring. The Germans have a word for it. It's called Bodenlos. And, and then I said, well, how does that relate to the concept that somebody takes glee in it? I said, they have another word for that, and it's called schadenfreude. This man takes joy in what happens in terms of the misery of others, and he fundamentally is lacking of a foundation that basically goes back almost three generations. And it's something that he has been responsible for in terms of his entire development. That's why I think what his niece says probably is very, very accurate. There was a psychiatrist analyzing it the other night, I think, on one of the major networks. And he agreed. He said it has become so interwoven in terms of the element of various components of the DMS-5, and that fundamentally you can't tell where something begins and where it ends. It is so fluid in his mannerism. And you look at him. Yeah, he, he, you know, yes, he is a man without a soul. And the big challenge that he's confronting right now, Richard, is that he has divided the world into two parts, those who are with him and those who are against him. And so he was very happy when the people who were against him, the blue states, were melting down with COVID. Now that the red states are melting down with COVID, he's got a real serious problem. We'll be you are back. listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And I don't just mean physical or political problem. I'm talking about a real serious psychological problem as well. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. 
Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the science revolution this week, can Americans stop the Republican Party and their billionaire buddies before another 100,000 Americans die from COVID-19? Dr. Michael Mann is here, and I'm asking him about the new climate models that are projecting even more extreme warming. Are they correct? Remington Gregg, the Council for Public Citizen, joins me on how the coronavirus continues to spread, yet there are no enforceable health standards coming out of this administration. Also, Chloe Waterman with Friends of the Earth drops by on how we stop meatpacking plants from killing us. Find the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Over on the Washington Post... Greg Sargent, who writes this opinion column for the Washington Post, the headline, Stop Saying Trump is in Denial, the Truth is Much Worse. Trump denying that COVID is as dangerous as it is. Trump saying 99% of people won't even be affected by it. It's very minor, blah, blah, blah. You know, we know all these things are not true. But uh, Greg Sargent, in the Washington Post of all places, I mean, you know, you know things are really bad when these basically institutional voices start talking like this. Points out Trump was warned in January by Alex Azar that a pandemic was on its way. He was loudly warned in April that a rapid reopening would be a disaster. Trump urged it anyway. I'm quoting from Greg Sargent here. Greg says, we know why Trump did these things. He feared that publicly taking coronavirus too seriously would spook the markets, and keeping the markets up was crucial to his re-election. His allies frankly admitted reopenings would fuel the impression of rapid rebound helping his re-election, or so they thought. You know, I pointed this out like maybe a month ago. I said, you know, Trump's strategy here is to throw people into the economy, to try to get the economy to open back up, even if it means a million people will die. And the big mistake that Trump made 
was not waiting until late September or early October to do this. Because the deaths don't show up for six or eight weeks from the time you do the policy. Then people start dying. People start getting sick two or three weeks after you do that policy. And that's what we're seeing right now. You know, Trump and all these guys going, oh, Mike Pence, you know, we're going to reopen on Memorial Day. Memorial Day, it's going to be safe. Memorial Day will be wonderful. And I, you know, I've talked about this on the air until I'm blue in the face. It's just, you know, Louise and I driving around on Memorial Day all, all over Portland and Vancouver, Washington. The vast majority of the people we saw were not wearing face masks in things like farmers markets and, and bars and restaurants. We were all open again. Wasn't that cool? I mean, not entirely here in Portland, but outdoors and things like that. And I was saying, this stuff is going to hit the fan. And here we are. So, you know, Greg said, now the Washington Post, an op-ed in the Washington Post. A far less charitable interpretation is that he's merely indifferent to the catastrophic consequences that are resulting from these failures. And will continue to do so because he's nakedly prioritizing self-interested political calculations over any other concerns. Press critic Jay Rosen says the effort to obscure Trump's role in this ongoing fiasco is producing one of the biggest propaganda and disinformation campaigns in modern history. In other words, the media isn't calling Trump out saying he doesn't care if you die. He thinks if he can put the economy back together, if he can get people back to work, if he can get people spending money again, even if it means a million dead Americans, that that will cause him to get reelected because the economy will be great and he's a one-trick pony and he thinks it's all about the economy. And I think that's true. And then you get, and just to put a pin in it here, Alex Azar, the guy who, you know, was the CEO of, I believe it was Eli Lilly. When he was CEO, they doubled the price of insulin. Well, he's now the head of Health and Human Services. <laughs> and he said, and I quote, he's talking about opening schools, right? He says, there's no reason we can't do any of this. He says, we have, we have health care workers. They don't get infected because they take appropriate precautions. They engage in social distancing. They wear facial covering. They use good personal hygiene. This can work. You, he's talking about teachers, you can do all of this. There's no reason schools have to be in any way different. Well, let's assume schools aren't in any way different. 94,000 healthcare workers have contracted COVID virus in the United States. Over 500 of them, some numbers as high as 750, have died. Thousands of them are hospitalized right now, healthcare workers. As we speak, some of them with a tube down their throat and, and sedated into a coma. And Alex Azar says, oh, no, that, that ain't happening. Teachers need to go back to work. Right. I mean, this is just, just amazing. Jen in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Jen, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. My mom's a high school teacher in Taiwan, and I just want to compare their response to the COVID-19 to America's dismal response and how Trump has really politicized education. And I, especially from the international student policy that was issued recently, forcing schools to open back up, that's really ridiculous. Your mom is teaching high school in Taiwan. How are they different from what we're experiencing here? Well, Taiwan took the coronavirus really, really seriously. I flew back mm. in January 18th, around that time for the election, and I was already noticing signs in the airport that was saying that if you had recently visited the Wuhan area, you had to download an app and self-report and quarantine and do all these measures. And then I believe they postponed school openings for about three to four weeks around the February-March time when people... We're trying to figure out what's going on with this virus. And then when they finally open schools back up, I believe they have about 30, around 30 people per class. And they issued a really strict policy that everyone has to wear masks and temperatures are taken for everyone before they are able to enter the school. They also had a policy from the Department of Education that if 
one student tested positive for coronavirus, the class would have to shut down. But if two people were tested positive in, within the school, the entire school would have to shut down. Wow. So taking it seriously takes on a new meaning here. I mean, they are taking this very seriously. Did they put up the plexiglass shields around the students' desks? Like I've seen, I've you know seen pictures of this on TV, or was that another country? No, I don't believe so. The way education is structured there is a little bit differently. Students did not travel from class to class in the beginning, so I think they had that advantage. And teachers were providing lectures with their masks on, and the Department of Education actually provided masks to students who did not have them. I actually wrote a book about education, and for that book, I visited the Taiwanese public schools back in the late '90s. I was very, very impressed by the way that they were teaching. Particularly, one teacher who was basically doing Socratic teaching. I mean, she was instead of saying things to her students, she was constantly asking questions and drawing them out. And they would have break into discussion groups and things like this. It was fascinating. Very, very comprehensive, good education. Jen, you want to make a final point, real quick? Um, I just think the U.S. needs to take coronavirus seriously, and it's getting really scary. Yeah, and that's why I think that Donald Trump is going to fail on this. But we'll see. Jen, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your story. It's a great one. You're listening to Tom Hartman. This headline over at Newsweek, of all places, Mexican residents form blockade at border as Arizona coronavirus cases rise. Yes, seriously. Citizens of Mexico are using cars and buses to block the road from Arizona into Mexico to stop Americans from coming into Mexico. They're building a wall, (laughs) which causes you to wonder, you know, if Americans on the southern border were really all that concerned about Mexicans coming into the United States. Why didn't they do the same thing? Here's the the, uh, story. This is by Chantal Da Silva in Newsweek. Residents of Sonoita, a Mexican border town facing Lukeville, Arizona, formed a blockade at the border over the weekend in a bid to block Americans from entering the country amid a rise in that U.S. state's coronavirus cases. On Saturday, Sonoita residents used their cars to form a blockade on the main road into the border town, which is also the fastest route to get to the seaside resort of Puerto Penasco. Protesters said that they would be forming another blockade on Monday. Uh, So here you go. Meanwhile, Governor Ron DeSantis, this is serious stuff, right? We're talking about reopening our schools, which means exposing kids to the coronavirus, exposing teachers and staff and janitors and administrators and everybody else to coronavirus. But also kids come home. And we really, I mean, we have not done a great deal of research on this. We do know that kids are less likely to develop symptoms. And when they do develop symptoms, those symptoms are less likely to be really severe or lead to death. Although a small percentage of children actually do get very, very sick from the coronavirus. But what we don't know is how effective they are at spreading the disease around. And I'm guessing probably opening the schools would be a great way to find out. If you're into that, you know, like, hey, let's just kill thousands of grandmas and grandpas and moms and dads. Uh, Millions, maybe. In the state of Florida right now has 232,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus. Let that sink in for a minute. Almost a quarter million Floridians have an active case of coronavirus right now. They added 9,000 of them yesterday, 8,935. And their governor, who always looks to me like he's wearing five padded bulletproof vests. I don't, there's something weird about Ron DeSantis, and I can't, I can't put my finger on it. But he comes out and he says, if you can do Home Depot, if you can do Walmart, if you can do those things, you can absolutely do the schools. Really? When was the last time you went to Home Depot and sat in a 20 by 20 enclosed area with 25 other people who were talking loudly and running around and touching each other and stuff? I don't recall that at Home Depot at all. Now, I haven't been in a Walmart in probably 40 years, but I, you know, I just, maybe 30, but 
but I have been at a Home Depot in the last year and I just don't recall anything that resembles being jam-packed into a room with a whole bunch of people. In fact, uh, you know, the one time that we have actually shopped at Home Depot since the great pandemic, got curbside delivery. I mean, what does Ron DeSantis know that I don't? Or is it that you and I and everybody else know something Ron DeSantis doesn't, which is that Walmart isn't a school, you idiot! Right? I mean, what else? It's like schools and Walmart, schools and Home Depot, they're different things. You have a different risk of infection there. Zeke Emanuel, Rom's brother, who's a, a doc, he's a bioethicist at the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, fairly common guy on TV as an expert on all this stuff. He says uh, a quarter million Americans could die of COVID by the end of the year. My prediction is we're going to see a quarter million dead Americans by the election, which is like two months before the end of the year. But, you know, like I said, I've been wrong before. I might be wrong again. But the thing that really concerns me and, and has to be really concerning teachers and parents and everybody else is what we don't know. Remember Don Rumsfeld, you know, the uh, defense secretary under George W. Bush talking about, uh, well, you know, we know the known unknowns. It's the unknown unknowns that are troubling. I'm paraphrasing, of course. He was onto something. In other words, it's not the things that you know might get you that often get you. It's the things that hadn't occurred to you. And they sneak up on you and clobber you. There's a lot we don't know about this virus. It has literally only existed in the human pool for seven, eight months at the most. And here in the United States for, what, four months in any consequential way? So we have no idea what the long-term consequences of this are. We don't know if it's going to be like, you know, chicken pox that produces shingles down the road, uh, or if it's going to be 95% of people who got polio or asymptomatic. We just don't know. We don't know if it's going to pop up later. We don't know if it's going to have a long latency period like HIV. The whole thing about immunity is very troubling. Increasingly, it is looking like the cytokines, the components of the immune system, which are activated in response to the coronavirus specifically, fade away in a few months. But again, we've only had it for a few months, so we really don't know. But if that's the case, I mean, that's the case with all the other coronaviruses, by the way. Well, actually, we don't know about SARS and MERS, although it appears that within two years, People who have had SARS and MERS no longer have antibodies, which means they could, they could get infected all over again. With the common cold, your immunity only lasts a few months. And then you can get the same cold all over again. That's why it's called the common cold. That's a coronavirus. Over at the Wall Street Journal, the headline, an article by Samathi Ruddy. Three months in, these patients are still ravaged by COVID's fallout. Chelsea Alanera, 37-year-old in Kaiser, Oregon, is going on more than 100 days of being sick with a racing heartbeat, chest pains, and numbness. Emily Jensen, a 34-year-old surfer and runner in Minneapolis, says she now needs an inhaler just to walk up the stairs. And Annie Harris, a 22-year-old recent college graduate, is struggling with extreme fatigue and headaches in Greenwich, Connecticut. All three women tested positive for COVID-19 roughly three months ago, yet they are still experiencing symptoms or after effects of the disease. The Wall Street Journal this is like a 10, 12 page article. They did this deep dive. One of the culprits apparently is a neurological condition that may affect up to 15% of all COVID-19 patients. It also may trigger chronic fatigue syndrome or it may cause your immune system to go haywire. They're talking about research done at Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. They're monitoring a thousand COVID-19 patients who all initially presented with mild symptoms but their symptoms have lasted an average of 50 to 70 days. The big thing that they're looking at is something called dysautonomia. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. When the autonomic nervous system is out of balance, it controls, uh, the autonomic nervous system controls temperature, blood pressure, heartbeat rate. And so when it gets out of balance, your heart races, you get extreme fatigue, you get shortness of breath. Dr. Paterino estimates dysautonomia may affect as many as 5 to 15% of all COVID-19 patients. He surveyed 600 people who have this. Median age, 42 years old. And the vast majority have symptoms lingering at least four weeks long. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Symptoms may include mental fog, exercise intolerance, and fatigue for at least six months. And they, they go digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Look around! You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Heather in Lansing, Michigan, my hometown. Hey, Heather, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? I just have some thoughts. First, let me preface with over 7,000 kids already in the state of Florida have tested positive just since the state opened. And the schools aren't even open yet. So let's just keep that in mind. Now, the thing that really bothers me is the short-sightedness of all of it. Chicken pox is a virus. And it stays in your body forever. And later could Mm -hmm. become shingles. What's another one? Oh, MS. Herpes. Multiple sclerosis. Yeah, herpes. But multiple sclerosis gets triggered by a virus at some point. You know? Yeah, herpes people causes are, cancer down the road. I mean, you know, people are, no, papilloma. Yeah, I mean, HPV. Uh, human papilloma virus causes cancer down the road. Yep. Throat yep. cancer and cervical cancer. Well, and aside from all of these things, AIDS is a virus, you know? And yes, mm. we know AIDS and it does stay with you forever. But they're also understanding now that it affects the heart muscles. It's not just what we thought. So how COVID, can yeah. people be so reckless? No, AIDS, the AIDS oh, virus. Okay, sorry. They're, they're finding yeah, COVID, that out now. Uh, it's further. Okay. 
COVID affects a ton of different organs and it affects your pancreas directly. It's affecting your lungs and your heart and your small blood vessels. But how can people be so reckless as to throw their kids into the Petri dishes? And I understand that people need to make money because the government has failed and not shut down the economy and not made it okay for people not to have to work if they don't have to, which we don't if they can make it that way. But come on, come on. Not only might it kill grandma or Uncle Jim or your sister who's fighting breast cancer and doesn't know it yet, but these kids could 10 years from now all be diabetic, all have neurological issues, all of them could have some form or another of something that we have no idea about yet because we haven't had time to understand this virus. And it's just disgusting. And I wish people. This is why every other country in the world, Heather, is trying to is trying to put this thing down. Well, yeah, I mean, because you don't know what it is. You just don't know what it is. And the thing that's really frustrating, too, is if you take that complete argument and transfer it to the masks, get over yourself. Put a mask on. You not only might be preventing your child. Who knows what? yourself from who knows what but don't tell me about your right not to wear a mask when you don't want to hear about my right not to get infected it's so frustrating and you know i'm in Bend, michigan and eh, it's not even 50 50 it's probably 70 30 and that's being generous what's that people will wear a mask and won't wear a mask you know i mean so which which side is which 30 i'm sorry 30 percent will 70% 70% are fighting it, or they will, but really? eh, I'm going to wear the same mask all the time, and I'm only going to wear it if I'm in the store for a while, not for a quick five-minute run, or not to the gas station, or not if I'm running and breathing heavily for a mile. It's so right. frustrating, but I wish people would be a little more, and I'm not a healthcare professional, I'm not a researcher, but I can, I understand that chicken pox, you know, everybody understands chicken pox, remind them that viruses can stay with you for your whole life and can affect you later. If one of them gets shingles in their nether regions when they're 70, they might wish they had not been exposed as a child. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a day, huh? Helen and Fair, I say that a lot. It's, it's, I'm just, I remember years ago when we used to do shows about just, you know, small stuff, you know, where we would uh, discuss relationships and things. It's uh, because the world wasn't melting down and we didn't have a madman in the White House. Rama in Williamstown, Vermont. Rama, you were my producer back when we started this show in Vermont. But as I recall, you were also on the school board there in the town that you live in. Yes, hi, Tom. How you doing? Don't forget Good. to tell people nice to you were voice. my boss way back when, too. And, <laughs> well, and an excellent boss you were, by the way. You would pay me with wine, and I don't drink, so my wife said thank you a lot. Yeah, that was back before we had even one single advertiser, and we were doing this whole thing. And, and I thought we were partners in crime, but in any case, go ahead. Uh, hey, listen, I, I'll tell you, before I get on it, let me just... Give me 15 seconds on this, Tom. I listen to you nowadays, and I think how special it was to have been privileged to be at the beginning of what's turned into a really great thing. Well, so that's how you, I view you, it. You really, I mean, this show would not have happened without your help. You well, contacted I, 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 radio I stations you. around Vermont. You got us on now the that, air. Now that uh, I've... Uh, and you were doing your own talk show at the time, you know. I mean, you you were one you were one of my mentors too. Okay, enough of this love fest. To your point about <laughs> school right. boards. Enough kissy face, because I want to tell. I, okay. I want to take exception with something you said though, and it's about the school board members and how they should be doing yeah. the bus driving and substitute teaching because they're the ones that set the budgets and all this. Oh, other did I hit stuff. a nerve here? Well, it's not so much a nerve, and I'm speaking from 10 years' experience as a Vermont school board member, so people's experiences may differ across the country. But my experience is that we actually, as school board members, had very little control over things like opening and closing of schools, curriculum, requirements for bus drivers, etc. And a lot of what we dealt with as school board members, it was important, but it was internal policies. And it was Mm -hmm. policies that dealt within a very well-defined sandbox that we were given by the state government to operate within. So hmm. I think a lot of So who should were, we recruit Rama to drive the buses and and substitute teach by way of saying, "Oh yeah, if you think it's safe for me, how about you?" Would it be the state legislature? 
Governor Phil Scott up here is a moderate Republican, and he's in some many ways genuinely what you would consider moderate, but he still carries that R next to his name. And I've said very publicly, and I'll say it to his face if I get a chance to, I think that it's become a character defect right now to keep that R next to your name. Yeah. Uh, nobody should be made to be driving these school buses with kids in them. Nobody should be made to be going in to do the... Uh, uh, substitute teaching or even the teaching under these circumstances. We all know proximity is what spreads COVID-19. It's no secret. We know this for beyond a fact. The closer the proximity, the easier it spreads. There is not a shadow of a doubt about it. So I think there's a lot of other good answers that could be done. The teachers, whether for example. they're unionized or not, want to work with us. The school boards want to figure out something that makes sense. The parents do. You know, everybody's concerned about the students except for, and, and I would call Trump an idiot, but I don't want to insult idiots. I swear to God, this guy, <laughs> I, 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 he is horrible. And don't think that he can't get this, I, I won't call win re-election, but don't think he can't continue his presidency. Because if we don't work hard to make sure it doesn't happen, it will happen. And more stupidity. He Listen, I think he's actually going after the public school system with this demand. I really do. I think what he's trying to well, do that's, is Well, Betsy DeVos has been working her whole life to destroy public schools. Yeah, so I, I think this is just part of, if they can make it too expensive, too untenable, and just absolutely unworkable in order to do this, there's the modern-day Trump-McConnell GOP dream. Right. Plus, in poor communities in America, particularly largely black, urban poor communities, the Internet service is crap and expensive. You know, a lot of people can't afford it and don't have it. And so, so much for distance learning. Another great way to disenfranchise poor communities in general and communities of color in particular. Rama, thank you. Brilliant. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And a tip of the hat again to Rama and his wife for putting up with me. We'll be back in just a minute. Aaron in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Aaron, what's up? With the schools being reopened, I was thinking Betsy DeVos and, and Steve Miller know how to kill people without laying a finger on them. So this is all just part of the plan. Like you said earlier, two to four times are black people and brown people that are being killed by this. So, so you're you're thinking, down with my theory that this, there's a eugenics oh, aspect to Trump's coronavirus oh, policy. I was actually going to call you on that, and you answered my question big time. <laughs> so, so yeah. but, but how does it work out to actually open up the schools? Like if you're in a rich a city like in California, like Palos Verdes, at Beverly Hills, you get the best of everything there. But if you're in a poor in a poor city like Compton or East LA. You're pretty much guaranteed to get nothing. Yeah. If Trump is successful in reopening the schools, I think one of the things that's going to come out of this is that many of the private schools are going to reinvent themselves as COVID safe private schools. They will do the things that they're doing in Taiwan and Germany and whatnot and, you know, provide safe spaces. But for a high price, Betsy DeVos wants to make sure that price is paid by the federal government. She's shoveling money at private schools right now and holding back money from public schools. And the public schools are going to, you know, it's just the, the continuing ghettoization of the public schools. Louise in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Louise. My question is whether or not you consider that Putin is advising Trump to keep the economy open in spite of the coronavirus. We know that Putin has a great desire to reduce America to a third world nation, and he doesn't care about American life. He keeps paying for Afghanistan to slaughter American soldiers. All he has to do yeah. is compliment Trump on the greatest economy in the world and tell him he'll win the election by keeping it going. I think it's entirely possible, Louise, although I think, frankly, it's larger than that. I, I've said before, I don't think Putin is the center of all evil. I think there's a, and basically an international group of billionaire oligarchs who hate democracy and are, you know, want to bring about oligarchy. And Trump is a proud oligarch, and Trump, you know, I don't think likes democracy at all. Frankly, I don't even think he understands it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Ezra Klein's new book, Why We're Polarized. This is from the introduction, and it's a couple pages into it. I'm starting out here. 
I have found that American politics is best understood by braiding two forms of knowledge that are often left separate. The direct on-the-ground insights shared by politicians, activists, government officials, and other subjects of my reporting, and the more systemic analyses conducted by political scientists, sociologists, historians, and others with the time, methods, and expertise to study American politics at scale. On their own, political actors often ignore the incentives shaping their decisions, and academic researchers miss the human motivations that drive political decision-making. Together, however, they shine bright light on how and why American politics works the way it does. There's much awry in American politics, and I won't in this book attempt to catalog all of it. But I've come to believe the master story, the one that drives almost all divides and most fundamentally shapes the behavior of participants, is the logic of polarization. That logic, put simply, is this. To appeal to a more polarized public, political institutions and political actors behave in more polarized ways. There are many different types of polarization possible, and I'll discuss some of them later in the book, but the locus of polarization I'll discuss is on political identity. And that requires saying a few words about a term that should be very useful in American politics, but that has become almost useless, identity politics. A core argument of this book is that everyone engaged in American politics is engaged in identity politics. This is not an insult, and it's not controversial. We form and fold identities constantly, naturally. Identity is present in politics in the way gravity, evolution, or cognition is present in politics. That is to say, it is omnipresent in politics because it is omnipresent in us. There is no way to read the literature on how humans form and protect their personal and group identities, literature I will survey in this book, and believe that any of us is immune. It runs so deep in our psyches, so activated so easily by even weak cues and distant threats, that it is impossible to speak seriously about how we engage with one another without discussing how our identities shape that engagement. Unfortunately, the term identity politics has been weaponized. It is most often used by speakers to describe politics as practiced by members of historically marginalized groups. If you're black and you're worried about police brutality, that's identity politics. If you're a woman and you're worried about the male-female pay gap, that's identity politics. But if you're a rural gun owner decrying universal background checks as tyranny, or a billionaire CEO complaining that high tax rates demonize success, or a Christian insisting on nativity scenes in public squares, well, that's just good old-fashioned politics. With a quick sleight of hand, identity becomes something that only marginalized groups have. The term identity politics in this usage obscures rather than illuminates. It's used to diminish and discredit the concerns of weaker groups by making them look self-interested. Special pleading in order to clear the agenda for the concerns of stronger groups, which are framed as more rational, proper topics for normal political debate. But in wielding identity as a blade, we have lost it as a lens, blinding ourselves in a bid for political advantage. We're left searching in vain for what we refuse to allow ourselves to see. All politics is influenced by identity. Those identities are most powerful when they are so pervasive as to be either invisible or uncontroversial. American is an identity. So too is Christian. When politicians, including the irreligious, end speeches with God bless America, it's not because they're making an appeal to a higher power, but because they're making an appeal to our bedrock identities. If you don't believe me, ask yourself why there are so few open atheists or even agnostics in national politics. This does not mean that politics is an equation solved by locating identity. Identity shapes our worldview, but it does not mechanistically decide it. And while we often speak of identity as a singular, it is always a dizzying plural. We have countless identities, some of them in active conflict with each other, others lying dormant until activated by threat or fortune. Much that happens in political campaigns is best understood as a struggle over which identities voters will inhabit come election day. Will they feel like workers exploited by their bosses or heartlanders dismissed by coastal elites? Will they vote as patriotic traditionalists offended by NFL players who kneel during the national anthem or as parents worried about the climate their children will inhabit? What we are often fighting over in American politics is group identity and status. Fights that express themselves in debates over policy and power, but cannot be truly reconciled by either. Health policy is positive sum, but identity conflict is zero sum.
The book, Why We're Polarized, by Ezra Klein. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Jose in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Jose, what's up? Uh, I was just a question about the schools opening. I myself am a teacher. Uh, in fact, last year at teaching, but the opening of the school seems really insane because the rise in numbers, the way the people are not acting in positive ways to, you know, to block the growth of this virus. I don't see how school can be run. In our system, we received an email where it's green, color green for a school is regular. Then we have a AB system where some will go one day, another, another, and then a one day virtual. Then we have an option for um, everybody going virtual. Mm-hmm. That's what was thrown at us because we, the governor is just now of Ohio, is just now coming out with, with plans, and I don't really see it happening. And I do think that it could be the point at which Trump totally loses because he may not love children, but the families do. I know how I work with families all the time, and no one wants to endanger their children just to get him on the positive side or to get him elected. You know, I, I, I do think right. this could be what you call his Waterloo. You know? I think so too, Jose. And I, and I don't think it's just the you know concern about the kids because this infection generally doesn't sicken kids terribly, although it does take down some. And, and there have been a lot of uh, children who have died from this. And, and many of them are getting these, it starts out with you know these bruises and these blisters on their toes, but uh, sometimes it goes in systemic. We don't know. I mean, this virus has only been in existence in the human population for six or eight months. So we don't know what's going to happen a year, two years, five years, 10 years down the road to these kids who got the infections. They may well have right. lasting neurological damage. They may well end up, you know, like Parkinson's patients, because it seems to attack those parts of the brain that, you know, are in that region. But we just don't know. But I think beyond the concern about the kids, which you absolutely correctly point out, Jose, I think you got a lot of parents who are concerned that the kids are going to bring the virus home to them. And, uh, you know, and maybe to grandpa and grandma, uh, you know, or older uncles and aunts and things, I mean, or to even their, you know, immune compromised or diabetic or overweight or, you know, smoker or asthma or whatever, family members, uh, maybe even older brothers and sisters. I think people are pretty flipped out. Jose, thank you for the call. Greg in Knoxville, Tennessee. Your thoughts? Hey, Tom. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I'm looking at this a little bit different from the transportation end of the school because I'm a school bus driver. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, here in East Tennessee, we're supposed to start school back August 10th. I'd say about 80 to 85% of our drivers are retirees oh my. to supplement their Social Security, you know, because Social Security is barely enough to live on. So here's the deal. We're talking elementary school children here. I've been driving for 13 years, and out of those 13 years, I can only remember one year that I didn't have to clean up vomit off the school bus. Now, these, mm-hmm. these small children, they get sick on buses. It's a common occurrence. You do get a cleanup kit with the bus. It consists of a little baggie of cat litter, a pair of latex gloves, a broom, and a dustpan. So what are we supposed to do when one of these kids get sick and vomits on the bus? Are we supposed to clean that up with that cleanup kit? Or are we supposed to clear the bus out and have a hazmat team come in there and do it? Yeah. Yeah, because that kid might have coronavirus, and that that may be actually toxic medical waste, basically. Yeah, you never know. I mean, by then, it's going to be all over the bus. Yeah. Well, even if the kid is just shouting, you know, his his breath will be all over the bus. He doesn't need to throw up. He can just talk loudly, and boom, you know, everybody within 10 feet of him is infected. Yeah, last year, I even had a kid with got a nosebleed. He bled all over the seats. I mean, I just don't know what we're supposed to do with that. Yeah. Well, like I yeah. say, are you going to go back to work, Greg, if you're called back? No, I'm not going. Yeah. Most of our I, drivers see, are think... elderly, retirees, and uh, most of them have, you know, pre-existing conditions. Right. And they would be crazy to go back to work. And the same is probably true of a, of a significant fraction of teachers. You've probably got a lot of teachers, maybe 10, 20, 30 percent of your teachers are probably over 50. And some of them have yeah, pre-existing if, conditions. And if you have a kid get sick on the bus, uh, that means everybody on the bus is going to have to quarantine. Right. Right. So, and 
we're short drivers anyway. I mean, who's going to drive the bus? The driver, okay. the driver will have to be quarantined also. So I don't know what their plan is. Yeah. Well, you know, this is why I said that we should call on the school board to do these things. Dwayne in Warren, Michigan. Hey, Dwayne, you got the last minute of the show. What's up? Hey, Tom, Professor. The senators, state senators, were starting on a law to ban firearms in the Capitol. And I guess they were getting death threats. And I'm like, can't the state police find these people? I mean, I don't know how they did it. They shouted them down or whether they called them or what. But, I mean, that's ridiculous. Look, they tabled it. And they're not even going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, what we're looking at here, Dwayne, is domestic terrorism. You're looking at, you know, crass intimidation specifically, and, and it's wrong. It's, it's un-American. I mean, it's, it's classically the way the Klan behave, but it's not, it doesn't reflect American values. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, take good care of yourself and help out our democracy. And be sure to tell friends, neighbors, acquaintances, anybody who will listen how they can find good progressive media. There's a lot of it out there. So get out there, share the word, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 